Good morning, everyone. If you could go and open up your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 go hand in hand. Not only do they go one after the other, but it does appear to be all uh, the same episode, the same era of teaching as Jesus has arrived at the Jerus- and in Jerusalem at the temple for the Feast of Booths, all right? So last week we were together, we were, began there in this great big teaching saga that continues on through seventh and 7 and 8, and uh, it's time for the Feast of Booths, and again, just a remi- reminder, sometimes it's referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament, and we'll get into some more details with that today and as chapter 7 and chapter 8 unfolds, because the Feast of Booths, of Tabernacles, is referenced multiple times in the teaching of Jesus during this. But there were seven, uh, 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 seven feasts prescribed by God for the Jews, for the Israelites, to celebrate. Uh, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, was one of the three required by God's law for all, at least one male representative from every family to come back to Jerusalem, where the temple was, and they were to celebrate this feast for those seven days. So we had uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is kind of shortened to be called the Passover. That was one. Uh, the Feast of Weeks, which is later shortened as far as the name of it goes, to be referred to as Pentecost, right? And then here we have the third required feast, the Feast of Booths. And we found out from the uh, chapter 7 there, verses 1 through 13, that it is time for this feast to happen. And again, it's required. Everyone is going. Jesus' brothers are going. It's usually this massive influx of people. There are pilgrims from all over. All of Israel comes back to celebrate this feast. And they're going to build temporary tabernacles. We refer to them as tents, okay? They would bring their, bring their sticks, bring their leaves. Everything would be brought into the city. If you lived in a home for that week, you would build a shack, a tent, a tabernacle, a dwelling on top of your homes as they were flat-roofed. There would be, it would be encampments all over the streets, like San Francisco, all right? It would be something like that, all right? Just camps everywhere where there aren't normally camps, all right? Set out everywhere. So that's kind of what the area would look like, probably better, since everything's natural looking there, and limbs and sticks, right? But anyway, that's what was going on. The brothers are on their way. They ask Jesus, is he going to go? Because they want him to be better known and more popular, but we find out that their motives aren't the motives of God or of Jesus Christ himself, of course, because they're not believers. He says that the world hates him, and Jesus says that, but the world does not hate the brothers. Why not? Because they were unbelievers, John tells us. The world loves its own, but the world hates Jesus. And we also looked at the fact that even though they were not believers, did they become believers? And yes, they did. We find them there in the book of Acts at the very opening, the 120 believers that are listed as the day of Pentecost approaches. His brothers are all there, and they are believers. James and Jude go on to write uh, two contributions here to our New Testament, right? So they do become believers. And we took note to remember that those in our life who ever we've tried and tried and continue to get the gospel out to them uh, that are un- unbelievers now, Uh, We don't just write them off as going to be unbelievers for the rest of their life, right? I mean, Jesus, they grew up with Jesus. They knew Jesus. He is in front of them much of their lives together, and yet they did not believe. But it was not permanent. They did believe eventually. So continue to show grace, mercy, and kindness to those in our lives who are still trying to witness too. Uh, Also, we noticed, noticed last week 
The Jews wanted to talk about Jesus to some degree, right? And, and this is huge news because there is someone performing signs, miracles, and wonders. This is unheard of. In the life of these Jews, this is just unheard of. And we've mentioned this before, signs, miracles, and wonders are an unusual thing, even for the Bible. Sometimes we just think they're canvassed all the way across every page equally, but that's not necessarily the case. We find that God would authenticate a prophet, validate that prophet, like he did to Moses, gave him three signs to go back and tell Israel and tell the Egyptians to show them that he is a messenger from God. We saw Elijah do seven, Elisha do do 14, and then you get to Jesus, and there's so many that John says he can't record them all. There's just so much going on. So these miracles, everyone's talking about this. Jesus had just fed the 20,000-something people, uh, had massive following. Then he began to teach, and then they went away. Now we fast forward six months later, and he's going to come into Jerusalem, and people are talking about these things. Hey, did you hear, right, that he... He multiplied the food. This guy had just a couple of fish and a couple of pieces of bread. Next thing you know, 20,000 are fed. Did you hear about the blind eyes being opened, the deaf ears? Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? And they're talking about him. Some are thinking he might be the Messiah, but we also find out later in the chapter 8 that no one wanted to talk because they fear the Jews, like we went over last week, but also they would be kicked out of the synagogue. In other words, they would be what we would consider excommunicated which was huge, right? The, the, the synagogue, these people in authority, had the keys to the kingdom, you might say. Here's the temple, here are the, here's the Sanhedrin, here are those in charge of the synagogue, they're in charge of everything. Your sacrifices have to go back to them. Uh, your relationship with God, it goes through that vein, right? And now they say, if you say that Jesus is the Christ, or think he's the Messiah, or talk about that, you are done, you're gone. So they're all back in Jerusalem now. They want to talk about Jesus. They wish the authorities would weigh in because he's doing these signs. Clearly God is with them, as Nicodemus found out. Uh, but they're fearful. And we also took note of that, that we need to watch out for ourselves uh, what makes us fear speaking openly about Jesus Christ. And there are multiple reasons that sometimes fear gets the best of us that we need to overcome. All right, with that said, we kind of set it up for today. Let's look at verse 14, and we'll go through verse 24 today. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we worship you today. We thank you, God, for the great opportunity to come together to fellowship with other believers, Lord, to draw strength from one another, uh, to feed upon your word, and to focus our our minds' attention and our hearts' affections on Jesus Christ, the Savior that you have sent to save us from our sins, to rescue us from the wrath and curse that we deserve for our sins, and to give us eternal life, justification, atonement, forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And that is the name we pray today. It's his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look back there at verse 14. Verse 14 says about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. All right. Now we know uh, the Jews were looking for him to kill him. And the, kind of the way you would picture this is on the first day of the feast, it really, basically 100% of the people would be coming in and would be done. They have to set up their shop. They have to set up their camps. If you hold your place there, turn over to Leviticus 23, verse 40 through 43. We find that this part of this mandatory required feast of God is that they camp out for seven days in these tents. And again, this is kind of a reenactment of God's provision for them as God removed them from Egypt. They wandered in the desert, but God continually provided for them. And they, they lived in tents at that time. And also, the dwelling place of God was in a tent. That, moved, uh, that they moved when God told them to move. But Leviticus 23, look at verse 40 through 43, some of these requirements. And you shall take on the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So here are the requirements. They are to bring these branches and these types of trees and willowy, leafy, and, and create these structures they are to live in them for how many days? Uh, seven, right? If you're ever, everyone asks you a number about the Bible, say seven, three, or 40. You're, you're going to get it, all right? But how many days were they to live in it? Seven days. They're supposed to live in these booths. Now, interesting here, and we're going to get to this as we approach more on the Sabbath coming up today and then chapter 9 as well, but uh, seven are required. Uh, how does Jesus Christ himself remain perfectly righteous and perfectly obedient to God, yet does he fulfill the seven-day requirement for this feast? Uh, his brothers came, and they all got their own time for the, to meet, meet this requirement, but did Jesus. And we find out here from verse 1, verse 14, I'm sorry that we're covering today, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to preach. And here... Just as in the case of him working on the Sabbath that we'll get to today in coming chapters as well, as we've gone over in uh, chapter 5, uh, Jesus here is, is revealing, right, something greater has come than the feast. Uh, the God-ordained feast, the Sabbaths, and all these things pointed to the future person and work of Christ. And to put this into context in a little more detail, 
Remember our Colossians passage. Go back over there with me. Colossians 2. We're done in Leviticus. Hold your place in John and turn over to Colossians. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So what we find is in the old, and, and this, this really helps you. You need to understand these things because you could easily, if someone didn't know how to interpret the Bible, or the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, they could easily come to you right now, read Leviticus 23, verse 40 through 43, and say, why did you not go to uh, Jerusalem, uh, right? Why are you as a Christian not there for seven days? And why don't you bring your, your, uh, your structure with you to go camp and go tent out in Jerusalem. And this thing was going on still even at the time of Paul. And Paul is interpreting what has happened in the light of Christ's coming and interpreting the Old Testament because people are trying to figure this out. Or do they still bring sacrifices to the temple? Uh, do they still honor these Sabbath days as required by law, if not stone people? Uh, are they still supposed to, uh, the, the, the clean and unclean foods and all these things, are they supposed to go to these feasts? Are they required to go to these festivals, these feasts, uh, feasts three times a year? And as you recall, we looked in Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 16 through 17. Paul lays it out clearly. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or feast, or a new moon, that would be the sacrifices that they had on every first of the month, uh, or a Sabbath. These are shadow a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this really helps clarify even what we're looking at today. We have a feast, a required feast. All of Israel is there. Jesus comes in the middle of it. All right? Number one, it was practical as far as the Jewish guards would have let up their guard because everyone that has arrived has already arrived and they did not see Jesus come in at all. He comes in the middle, scoots through their radars, and is able to get all the way to the temple. But also we see there's something greater being shown here, that Jesus is, is higher than the feast. He is the substance of the feast. He is what the feasts are pointing towards, all right? He is what the Sabbaths, the, the rest and provision that God provided for his people pointed to. That's why we, we don't are not required to meet on the Sabbath day. Yesterday, right, would be the Saturday uh, because Christ has been accomplished. Our salvation has been accomplished in him. So we rest in him. We do not work for our salvation. We rest in the provision God has provided through Jesus Christ. Something very similar is happening here with these feasts. All these Old Testament types all right, they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 11 through 13 there in Colossians chapter 2 deal with circumcision. But the circumcision that we as believers now have, it is we have been circumcised by Christ, not a circumcision by hand. It is supernatural. It is spiritual. It is fulfilled through Jesus Christ who regenerates us supernaturally, all right? So we're finding more and more of these types are listed out there in Colossians 2. Find their fulfillment. Find their substance in Christ, okay? So we're seeing that hinted at here, even in the feast, by him showing up there in the middle. And it's also very interesting. If you think of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, where the people are supposed to gather around the tabernacle or the temple of God, but yet Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Right, this reminds you of some passages, maybe like Matthew 1, 23, uh, where the angel says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. As, and this is more than just a figurative way of speaking, God with us. This is literal. You literally have the tabernacling of God with man. And when you have God the Son incarnate with his people. Think of John chapter 1, verse 1. I always put 14 there with it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you have Jesus Christ, who is the literal incarnation of God dwelling with man. It's, it's, it's like, it's, he, he is the substance of this feast in the highest, highest possible way. All right? Now, when Jesus, still there on verse 14 in uh, John chapter 7, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, where did he go to teach? Well, we find out he goes directly to the temple. He's able to pass through their guards, go directly to the temple, and this is where he is setting up shop to teach. Now, has he had history in the temple before? And John has let us know that he clearly has. Go back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, look at verse 13. And we find out that there was a lot of history there at the temple. I have verse 13 through 16 and verse 23 just to, to speed that up a little bit. But just look at this. He, so he arrives at, again, another mandatory feast, the Passover. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making up a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. All right, so we find that there. It's definitely a lot going on. He's got the attention of everyone. Look at verse 23. Just skip over to there. Uh, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay? Now, go back to John chapter 7. Now, keep all that, all of that in mind. Because here, you have the worst possible scenario happening for the Jews. They knew. This, this is not... John covers a very short time in the life of Jesus. Uh, we're getting to where it's just going to be a few months. For, uh, most of the book is just a few months of his life. Uh, even chapters 7 and 8 are just a few days of his life. But this, is, this last Passover that had happened... They knew who Jesus was. He, with authority, went into the temple uh, without the permission of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, or the Sanhedrin, right? The 71 official authorities of the temple who would later put Jesus to death. He goes in and he starts flipping tables and has a whip and he's running animals out, uh, turns over the money, and he also performs signs. And again, Signs, supernatural signs that pointed to the fact that he came with authority. Who was authorizing him? God. The same God who authorized Moses to perform signs. So that had happened. Now the, the Jewish leaders did not want him back in. Why not? Well, later we find out envy is the root cause of why they do not want him in. They are totally content with the religion that they have. They are not looking forward to this kind of Messiah, this kind of a Savior who's going to save people from sins. 
The only Messiah they wanted was one that would give them political and economic power, drive out the Romans, and restore Jerusalem, all right? That is not the Messiah that came, and they don't want it, and it slowly becomes more evident. They don't like that at all. They don't want people calling him the Christ or Messiah, and they are envious. He's getting all this attention. How many miracles can the Sanhedrin perform? How many miracles can the high priest perform that's over the entire temple? And the answer is none. It's not happening, all right? Jesus is the one authenticated by God. Long story short, he's got history at the temple. Worst case scenario now, he has propped himself back up in the temple. They wanted to prevent him from coming to Jerusalem. They are desiring to kill him. And now he's in the temple and he is teaching again. Look at verse 15 of John chapter 7. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And, and again, this is unbelievable for them. It's, it's a mesmerizing, it's marveling, right? This man has not gone through the... There's two divisions there within the temple. You have the, in the, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish uh, teaching authorities. You have the Pharisees we talk about a lot. You have the Sadducees as well. And they have some differing views on angels, differing views of, of resurrection from the dead, etc. But you have these two schools of thought. And they have their own scribes. And they have their own big name teachers as well. And now you have Jesus who has set himself up at the temple, the prime time, the feast that is required by everyone to attend. And he is teaching. And these Jews, when it says Jews here in verse 15... These are the Jewish authorities, all right? And they're asking, why, how can this man do this when he's never studied? He hasn't gone through, there are Pharisees or Sadducees, have they gone to your school? No, not my school. Has he gone to yours? No. Uh, how does he know these things? How does he have such access to the Word of God, know the Word of God so well? And if you think about even Luke chapter 2, uh, you have, in Luke chapter 2, you have Jesus back at the temple, right? His parents leave, forget he's there, they come back. And he is, he is mesmerizing. They're, they're marveled at, his, at how much he knows, even at the age of 12, and he's at the temple. So he has never received a formal education. Now this, uh, keep your spot there, but look over at Acts 22, verse 3. Acts 22, verse 3. I want you to see kind of the Jewish thought, how this is supposed to go down. You're supposed to go through and be trained and discipled by these Jewish teachers, these Jewish authorities, and come up under their tutelage and be their protege, and eventually you could replace them as they die off or as they get old enough, and, and you would become the teacher. But you've got to go through the system, right? Who do we know in the Bible that was going through such a system? It's Paul, or slash Saul. In Acts 22, the, the riot there at the temple happens, and uh, they're getting hold of Paul, and Paul has to lay his case out before them to try to get a little respect to get them to stop before he can share his testimony. So look at Acts 22, verse 3. He says, this is Paul speaking, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated, this is the way it's supposed to have happened, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now, this is, the, this is the expectation. This is what a lot of the Jews are marveling. 
but said, where has this man studied? How does he know such things? Jesus has no name to drop like Paul did. He can't say, well, Gamaliel. And everyone goes, whoa, he said Gamaliel, right? That is the name. And that was, that was the name, the Pharisee to sit under, to learn from. That was the name. Jesus has no name to drop. He has no school of thought to drop. I'm fair, not Pharisee, not Sadducee. What does he say instead? Well, we look at verse 16. We see that he has a higher education. Ha ha. All right. Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So we find out his education is, is his, his knowledge, his words, his teaching is from the one who has sent him. It is directly from God the Father. There is no training. He's speaking the words of God. And he's speaking them directly. The Old Testament prophets would say things like, uh, thus saith the Lord. And then that, that was from God. Jesus is just up there teaching, and he is not having to say, thus saith the Lord, or thus saith God. Why is that? Because he is God. And that's why they also marvel at different places about his authority that he teaches with. Other scribes, teachers, Pharisees, Sadducees would, would cite other great teachers. They would cite Gamaliel. They would cite someone else. They would cite, Jesus just gets up and he speaks as if he is God, the word of God, which he is the word of God. Let's go on down to verse 17, John chapter 7. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. All right, so since Jesus had been sent by God and his teaching was God the Father's, uh, their rejection of Jesus' teaching reveals that they actually have no desire to do the will of God. Verse 17 makes it clear that those who truly desire to do the will of God will also submit to and see and be under the teaching of Jesus Christ because it's not his own authority is directly from God. So those who desire to do God's will will also submit to the teaching of God that has come through Jesus Christ. And this is a good point of application even today. This is still true for us today. Many people profess to be on God's side, yet they reject the teaching of Christ. What does this mean for such a person? Uh, a person who rejects the teaching of Christ also rejects the one who sent him. A person that believes that he or she is doing the will of God, yet rejects the teaching of Christ, is like the Jewish leaders. They have a false assurance of their position before God. They, the, think about this. Those, those in that day, they desired to do the will of God so bad that they were willing to put God in the flesh to death. Like, he is really getting, God is really getting in the way of us doing the will of God around here. And if we could just get rid of him, we could go on serving God, all right? They had no place for God. They didn't want God in their life. They, they had their system down, and they were with quotation marks around it, doing the will of God, all right? But does God say that that's what he wants done? No, not at all, right? So... God was getting in the way too much. They wanted him out. They want to put him to death. Look over at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. 
But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So here we see another big, big contrast. You might see two contrasts, the way Jesus is speaking here, um, that, that, that he is true, there is no falsehood in him, versus those who are making these judgments at him. Also, the authority uh, that, that, he see, that he has is from God. But also we see here those who speak on his own authority seeks his own glory. He's talking about them. All right? he, is not, he has not arrived today to seek his own glory. He is pointing everything to God. Everything to God. To God be the glory. A true, true sola de gloria uh, incarnate. That's what Jesus is doing. All glory to God. Uh, these authority figures here are speaking with authority uh, but they seek their own glory. They're seeking their own glory. And we find this true. Then, we find this true, uh, and you'll look at some of that in your discipleship time today, but that false teachers throughout history, uh, they use, they prop themselves up as an authoritative figure, uh, an authority, and they also seek more and more glory. That false teachers are glory hounds. They want more and more of it. They will use religion as a device to bring themselves attention, fame, fortune, and popularity. You guys uh, that were able to make it uh, to Justin Peters a few weeks back, the conference, you think of the false teachers that he brings up, and this verse really comes to mind. They prop themselves up as the authority. They're all having their supposed visions from God, their direct words from God that they try to speak these words directly as if God had a conversation with them. And many times they will say that. Last night I was, I was visiting with God or whatever, and they'll tell you what God told them. They're propping themselves up, right? Propping themselves up as an authority. Why? To give God glory? No, to give themselves glory. So false teachers then and now doing the same thing. A good indicator of a false teacher is if the person ascribes to his own authority and seeks his own glory. Keep that in mind, all right? Not just as we read the Bible, but even for today. Those that prop themselves up as their own authority and seek their own glory. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now, We've covered this, and we'll keep mentioning this multiple times because John keeps mentioning it in the gospel. Uh, but the Jewish leaders like to portray themselves as sitting in the seat, sitting in the authoritative chair of Moses himself. Moses was the lawgiver, and now they are the law enforcers. During these feasts, during these Sabbaths, they're always got their eye keen. They're looking for rule violators, right? They are the law enforcers. And they're doing it not with a right judgment, as we find out, but a false judgment. Now, look at Matthew 23, verse 1 through 3. Just a quick verse, but just kind of, he says this directly there. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3. Flip over there with me. Oh, one other passage in Matthew we'll look at as well. All right, so here you see what Jesus is talking about back here in uh, John chapter 7. But uh, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. All right, now, what did Moses literally have a chair at the temple uh, that he used to sit on? No, that's not it, right? It's a figure of speech, right? But they're sitting, they're in this position of authority. Here, uh, Jesus uncovers that they are hypocrites. They are false. They, they sometimes declare the word of God, uh, and the word of God in and of itself is, is good. But, but what they're doing is not obeying the word of God. So he says, don't do what they do. They are hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? Jesus exposed in John chapter 7. Because they say they are like Moses. They're sitting on the seat of Moses. They're upholding the law. They're calling out law violators. But yet, he knows their heart. He is God. He knows that they desire to kill him. They desire to murder him. Is it against the rules of God to murder someone? It goes back to the, even the, the, the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not murder, or you shall not murder. Exodus 20, verse 13. So they say they are pure and righteous and making right judgments, sitting in the chair of Moses, but yet they're wanting to kill Jesus. Now, what do they do? Uh, how do the authorities respond to Jesus? They play dumb when Jesus says, you desire to kill me. They play dumb. But then also, what do they do? They claim that Jesus has a demon. You talk about, talk about a, a play here. Uh, that, I mean, this is, this is wild. The Jews are beside themselves. Jesus has made it into Jerusalem, made it into the temple again. What's he going to do? Flip the tables over, start performing signs again. And uh, he's teaching and, and, and people are listening to him, and, but now he says someone wants to murder him. Let's just let's, let's say he has a demon. Let's go with that. So that's kind of the word that they spread. This man has a demon, all right? Now, they label, want to label him now as one that is on the side of Satan. This is huge. This is massive, and this will not be the first time. Hold your place in John. Move on over to Matthew chapter 12. Verse 22 through 24. You're in Matthew there, should be, but Matthew 12, verse 22 through 24. We'll see if this is a common, common uh, cyclical, repetitive argument that they bring to Jesus. They just want to label him as uh, a follower of Satan himself. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, was brought to him, Jesus. And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? That's a right deduction, all right? Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So the teaching of Jesus... They're, they're mad at that. Here, they're refer, they're, they're, Jesus is teaching. They're marveling at it. But yet, they're saying he has a demon. Here in Matthew 23, he has performed this sign in front of them. A blind, a mute person was oppressed by a demon. The demon is, is removed. And what do they do? They are so puzzled. Obviously, this took supernatural power to accomplish. Who can do such a thing? And all, it, all should be pointing back to God, like in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus said, surely God is with you, or you couldn't be doing these things. But instead, they pick another 
powerful entity. Who do they pick? They pick Satan. Not that God and, and Satan are equal at all, or, or that, that we have a history of Satan doing these types of things. Uh, but that's what they say. It's irrational. It's, it's not theologically right. Uh, but they blame it on Satan. So Jesus has healed this man. And how is he doing it? By the power of Satan himself. Very similar to what's going on over here in John chapter 7. Now who is actually on the side of Satan? Let's go over to John chapter 8. We'll get there sometime in the future, but we're just going to get a little preview here. John chapter 8, verse 42 through 44. I'll give you a hint. It's not Jesus that's on the side of Satan. It is definitely not. All right, John 8, 42 through 44, just the first portion there. Jesus calls them out and tells them who they are truly following. It's not God, and it's not Moses. It's someone else. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, and all this is the same teaching time, this, this uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Oof. This goes hand in hand with what we're talking about today. And even our sermon today, the passages we've picked, they will be repeated later in 7 and later in 8 as well. But just look at verse 44. You, they're, they're, they're questioning Jesus' authority to stand and speak and to teach. And uh, who has sent him there? It wasn't Gamaliel, it wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't the Sadducees, it wasn't the high priest. But now he says, look at verse 44, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So now he exposes them fully. Even though they claim to be doing the will of God and rejecting the teaching of Christ, actually they are not obeying God and they're doing the will of someone else and who is it it is Satan and he refers to Satan as their father they're probably not going to like that but it is a really interesting it's an interesting trick that they have here you have followers of Satan the Messiah Jesus Christ God the Son incarnate is teaching and you have the followers of Satan saying that man has a demon and yet he is the Holy One of God. He is God in the flesh. But this is all part of their game plan, all right? Uh, now, we know that, that, that those who often portray themselves as representing God, from what we see here, are not truly representing God. Uh, look at Revelation 2. This one's on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there. But Revelation 2, 9. It says, uh, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Wow. Now, we're not going into great detail about this Revelation 2-9 passage, but we do find that Jesus here calls those who, who reject Christ uh, Jews. They say they're Jews, but they're not uh, truly spiritual Jews. They're not truly in Abraham because they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are still in the synagogues. But they are a synagogue of Satan. Wow, this is heavy. So not only does he back, back when he is alive on earth before the resurrection, ascension into heaven, he's saying the same things in front of them. Uh, your father is Satan. Now he's ascended into heaven. Uh, he, appeared, he, he gives this message to 
John here in Revelation, and he's still saying there are synagogues of Satan. Why are they synagogues of Satan? I thought they represented God. They rejected God. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected salvation. Now they are adhering to what 1 Timothy 4.1 would say is the doctrine of demons. All right, They are following their father, following the father of lies. They're following Satan. Their synagogues are synagogues of Satan. Now, does it strike you, think about it, that the top religious leaders of this time were actually not following God, but Satan? But if you ask them who they were representing, who would they say? Would they say, oh, yes, we represent Satan. This is the, the temple of Satan. No, they would not. They would say, oh, no, no, this is the temple of God. And we and drop big, big names. We sit on the seat of Moses, right? We have Abraham as our father. And we drop these big names. They were in this very holy site. But yet Jesus says, your father is Satan. You follow the doctrine of demons. You have a synagogue of Satan. This is huge. But yet all this is reversed that day where they actually accuse Jesus, God in the flesh, of being a demon. All right. So well, Satan works. <clears throat> not only does God work in mysterious ways, you might say, but Satan works in mysterious ways as well. And this is definitely one of them. We followers of Satan back there, the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc., followers of the doctrines of demon. Satan is our father. We are going to try to stir this crowd up and say, actually, it's you who are following uh, demons and you're demon oppressed and you, by the power of Satan, are doing these things. Very mysterious way to try to go about things here. But we do have to be careful. Uh, Satan often works through people who claim to represent God. So just because someone claims to represent God, I mean, you think about it, this is the temple uh, of God in Jerusalem, Sanhedrin, the most powerful religious supposedly people on the side of God, but yet, who puts Jesus to death? It is those people. They have no room for God in their lives. Verse 21, back in John chapter 7. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. All right, Jesus is referring here to one of the last feasts that he was at. Over there in John chapter 5, you want to turn back a page, you're more than welcome to. Uh, and we're just going to kind of, kind of remind ourselves. Jesus did one work he's referring to in, in verse 21. He's referring to those that saw that one work, which would be the Jewish authorities last time he was here. This one work is that supernatural sign where he raised a man who'd been lame for 38 years. Not in lame like corny, but lame like can't walk, all right? He could not move. He couldn't get up. He could do nothing. He was by the pool. He couldn't get himself in. He could do nothing. Jesus says, speak. Pick up your mat, get up, and instantaneously the man is healed. Look over at Matthew 5, 15 through 18. Surely the Jewish authorities will be like, wow, this is amazing. Praise God, right? Clearly this man is from God. No. John 5, 15 through 18. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, again, Jesus has performed this sign. No one else is doing such a thing. 38 years, the man has not moved his legs. He can't get up. He can't move. Everything is atrophied. And all of a sudden, Jesus speaks life, right? So much so that he's carrying his mat. He's carrying his mat all the way to the temple, most likely to obey the the commandments of this feast to provide an offering to go there and worship, etc. And the priests see it and they are highly offended. Who has told you to do such a thing? How is this possible? And they go get Jesus. They're mad at him. Uh, what is Jesus' justification for working on the Sabbath? They accuse him of working on the Sabbath. He doesn't say, no, actually, I'm not working on the Sabbath. You've got it completely wrong. If you look back at John chapter 5, verse uh, 17, he says, oh, yeah, you, you got me. I'm working. Why am I working? Because I'm God. <laughs> that is why I am working, all right? For the same reason that God the Father is working, God the Son is working. I am God, all right? And I'm not limited by the rules that I put in place for the Israelites, for the Old Covenant. Uh, this is the same reason that God works on the Sabbath. He is God. Now, Jesus is the new covenant maker, the rest and provision of God that the Sabbath pointed to is found in the substance, as Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It's in Jesus Christ. This is, he is the ultimate Sabbath. Our Sabbath rest, our provision from God comes through the great Sabbath maker, you might say, Jesus Christ. This is the one that we find our eternal rest in. This is the one that we find our, our spiritual provision in, is in him and him alone. Now, the Jewish leaders are overlooking uh, themselves for performing this circumcision. Now, why does circumcision come up during this conversation at all? It's, we have to kind of wrap our minds around that. So, by law uh, that God put in place, uh, the, a, child is, a male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day. If they were born in such a way that the eighth day fell on a Sabbath, what were they to do? Jesus says that they were... The, the, those in charge, the Jewish authorities, were circumcising, doing this minor surgery on that child still on the Sabbath day. So he says, you are judging me. You're not judging yourselves for performing a small surgery to make things right, but yet you're judging me for speaking and making an entirely new man. Uh, the whole man is healed. Instead of rejoicing, instead of celebrating, you're pulling out the judgmental eyes and saying, this is wrong. He's saying, if, if what I have done is wrong, then what you would have done is wrong, but you're skipping over that completely, right? All right, the point is they have missed the point entirely. Uh, a man was completely healed, his entire body, yet they want to kill Jesus for it. Even though they claim to sit on the seat of Moses, they are not making right judgments. And this we see at the very end of the passage today, verse 24. Where Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. These who are supposedly sitting on the, as law enforcers of God's law, you have God himself saying, you are full of falsity. You're following Satan. It is not I. And you're making false judgments. You've set yourself up as a judge, but you're not a good judge at all. So, in summary, 
In today's passage, we find a lot of these things will be repeated through 7 and 8. It's almost like an introduction to it. But the teaching of Jesus is directly from God the Father. That's the point he's making there to them. God has authorized and validated that Jesus Christ, by providing supernatural signs and giving direct teaching from God, Jesus is actually the greater Moses. It is not them. Uh, Jesus seeks to give glory to God. They seek to glorify themselves. And it is they, not Jesus, who is on the side of Satan. And as we recalled earlier, let us remember that oftentimes those who say they have a message from God or say they represent God are not from God at all. The father of lies works in mysterious ways. And those who truly desire to do the will of God will put themselves under the authority of God by trusting and ascribing to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And that's not what we find from these supposed religious authorities let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word that we were able to look into today help us to take these things to heart and realize that obviously you have sent jesus he is your eternal son he is the messiah he is the christ he is god incarnate who's dwelt amongst among us and it's through him that we have salvation he has been sent by you you have authorized him the signs miracles and wonders validated him and validated that he was sent he spoke with authority and god help us to see that he is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies from the old testament also from all these types of the old testament there are the feast the sabbath the circumcision the all these things are pointing forward to the one who would spiritually accomplish all of that on our behalf and god we don't have to bring a sacrifice to church today we don't do not have to go to a priest to confess our sins we do not have to celebrate those feasts and put us, ourselves in a tent for seven days and we do why do we do we not do these things because you have blessed us with jesus christ we look to him who is our salvation and we rest fully in the work that he accomplished on our behalf and god help us to never think that we are contributing to our salvation or that we can contribute to our salvation but help us to truly rest and see that we are saved by grace through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.